Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, Nehemiah chapter 9, our second continuation. But as we continue in chapter 9 of Nehemiah this week, we're going to try to connect some dots as well as put the the spotlight on some of the deeper things contained uh, within this humble, penitent prayer uh, by the people of Judah. And as is our custom, we will begin by summarizing last week's lesson. Now first we notice that this prayer consists of displaying a number of cycles, whereby Israel is in good standing with God, then sins, then is punished, then repents, and then it's restored according to God's great mercies. And then it starts all over again. It, I, I gave it the name, the cycle of sin. And we find that this pattern is, unfortunately, more or less representative of the history of Israel in a nutshell. And I would submit to you that this cycle can be more or less representative of the life of believers in general if we're not faithful and vigilant. While I suppose we could look at this pessimistically and think, then what hope is there for us to ever break out of this terrible cycle? seems to me that we ought to see this from the more positive viewpoint. As long as we continue in allegiance to Jehovah our God, then God will continue to show us mercy. And as long as we continue to do that, we're going to be fine. However, like Israel, discipline for our sinful behaviors will be dealt with, sometimes severely, and it won't be overlooked. The Lord's hope is always that such discipline will cause us to repent and to change and to once again seek Him in His righteousness. And if that happens in a sincere and contrite attitude, then the Lord has obligated Himself to forgive us, to restore us. Now, I call that good news and something to be very happy about. Second, we find in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9 a reminder of what occurred after Israel was delivered from Egypt and they stopped at Mount Sinai to meet God. There the Lord gave Israel the Torah and also revealed to them the Shabbat. And it is interesting how the Sabbath was separated away from all the other laws and commandments given to Moses and spoken of almost as a separate issue. And as we rolled back the clock to creation in the book of Genesis, we found that essentially Shabbat was the final act of creation, after which no more creating would occur. Beginning at the first Shabbat, what had been created was to be allowed to produce and reproduce on its own. It was when we looked closely at the Sabbath commandment, the fourth of the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20, that we realized that this particular commandment was quite unique 
in that we are instructed to remember the Shabbat. And the word zakar that is usually translated to remember in our English Bibles is more correctly meaning to recall as opposed to remember. Recall means to bring something up from the past that's already been established. So the idea is that Sabbath was essentially the seventh and final act of creation and the law about Sabbath given to Moses on Mount Sinai was intended to recall that God had ordained this day in the beginning and that it was to continue to be observed forever. It hadn't been suspended. It hadn't been done away with. However, as we fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, we read about the recreation of the world. That which the Bible calls the new heavens and new earth. And that that time, time indeed, it will be the end of days literally. There will be no more alternating periods of light and darkness, the result of which gives us a day. There will be no moon, meaning there will be no lunar cycles, no more months. Since there are no days, then there's not going to be any weeks. Since there are no lunar cycles or sun, there's no way to measure seasons. So it seems there will be no more seasons. Of course, no more years. Think about that. There will be no more death, only life. No more toil, only rest. Thus we find that upon the new heaven and earth we enter what is essentially a permanent Sabbath. The seventh day Sabbath established by God at the beginning of time was divinely designed as a type and a shadow of what is to come at the end. Essentially, eternity is the never-ending seventh-day Shabbat. The permanent day of rest, in a manner of speaking. Well, let's continue now with Nehemiah chapter 9, starting at verse 15. And we're going to reread this uh, chapter in sections. We're going to just read from verses 15 to 21 to start with. You will find that on page 1142 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. 15 through 21. For their hunger you gave them bread from heaven. For their thirst you brought forth for them water from the rock. You ordered them to enter and possess the land you had sworn with your hand to give them. But they and our ancestors were arrogant. They stiffened their necks. They ignored your mitzvot, your commandments. They refused to listen. They paid no attention to the wonders you had done among them. No, they stiffened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a leader to return them to their slavery. But because you are a God of forgiveness and merciful, full of compassion, slow to grow angry, full of grace, you did not abandon them. Even when they cast themselves a metal calf, 
saying of it, This is your God that brought you up from Egypt and committing other gross provocations. Still, in your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. The column of cloud did not leave them by day. It kept leading them along the way. By night, the column of fire kept showing them light in the path to take. You also gave your good spirit to teach them and did not withhold manna from their mouths and provided them water to quench their thirst. Yes, forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell up. Now as this prayer continues to recall Israel's journey through the wilderness, after receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, Israel began to receive manna for food. Thus, after receiving the heavenly bread of life, the Torah, at Mount Sinai, to nourish their souls, to refresh their intellects, so that they knew God's will, now they receive the earthly bread of life, manna, to nourish their bodies so that they could do God's will. Of course, water was also needed for life, and so that too was provided even from rocks. So the miraculous is on display virtually daily as they trek through the desert. It is only by supernatural activity that the Israelites, all three million of them, could ever hope to survive in such a barren place for so long. But the last half of verse 15 reminds Israel of why God did this. Why did he do it? What was the goal of the wilderness journey? It was to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of a land set apart for God's people. However, this was an already occupied land. So it had to be taken and it had to be possessed. Now, from learning, uh, Israel learning God's ways and being in harmony with God, verse 16 advances to step two of the cycle of sin. Israel is said to have stiffened their necks, indicating stubbornness, and refused to obey the Lord any longer. They refused to listen. They refused to pay attention to all the miracles that the Lord had done to help them survive. This is where our Hebrew comes in handy. Where the complete Jewish Bible and most other translations say that Israel refused to listen, the word is Shema. And Shema means to obey what you hear. It doesn't mean to listen. That is why some translations will say refuse to obey instead of refuse to listen. Because obedience to what you've heard, that's the issue. The next Hebrew word we want to look at is where the verse says, and paid no attention. Most other English Bibles say we're not mindful. Here we again encounter that word, zakar which is regularly translated in other places like the Ten Commandments as remember. 
But as we discussed, it more means to recall. So the indictment against Israel is they didn't obey what they heard at Mount Sinai and they didn't recall all the miracles that the Lord had been doing on a virtually daily basis for them. In other words, they simply took the grace of the manna, for instance, for granted. And what was the result of refusing to heed the Lord's commandments and remembering the miracle of their redemption and all the wonderful things God had been doing for them? They chose a leader to take those who wanted to go back to Egypt and willfully put themselves back under their formal evil, uh, former evil taskmaster. That is, they preferred their former subjugation to the redeemed life with God that they were currently living. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. It is a common Christian doctrine today that the evil taskmaster that believers should not go back to is the law of Moses as opposed to going back to the devil. So the idea is that indeed it is certainly possible to be redeemed in Christ, saved, but then later reject the grace of Christ and instead return to the bondage of the law. Note how out of context such a thought is. The evil taskmaster in the Bible is always Egypt, not the law. My speculation as to why this doctrine ever arose is that when we take the word of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament literally, and in context it is clear that a believer can of their own accord give up their salvation and return to the bondage of Satan. But the church doctrine of eternal security says that can't happen. Therefore, the only alternative to make both of those doctrines work is that the evil taskmaster of Egypt can't be the devil, it has to be the law of Moses. I want to be clear on what I'm saying. The evil taskmaster throughout the Bible is one thing alone. Egypt. Egypt always represents oppression and bondage to the evil one, Satan. And I'm saying that yes, a believer in Yeshua can choose can choose to turn away from their salvation and return to their former state as a slave of Satan. But what is not possible is for a believer to be forced by someone or something to give up our salvation, nor through some accidental action can we lose it. We can't be tricked out of it. Such a choice is willful and voluntary. And since believers aren't robots, we retain the free will to choose all of our days. However, equally important, it is possible to rectify this deadly mistake and repent and return to the Lord. And in general, the Lord will show mercy and accept us back in the fold. The most elegantly simple expression of this principle is found in the book of James. James 5, 19-20 My brothers, if one of you wanders away from the truth and someone causes him to return, you should know that whomever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death. 
and will cover many sins. And notice how this expresses exactly the pattern of what we just read in the last half of Nehemiah 9 verse 19. But because you are a God of forgiveness, merciful, full of compassion, slow to angry and full of grace, you didn't abandon them. Even when Israel committed the grossest form of idolatry and it cast a metal calf and called it Yehovah, still the Lord didn't abandon them and He didn't destroy them. God didn't even stop guiding them by the fire cloud day and night. Now verse 20 is one that can be rather unexpected if we take it for what it actually says. Because there we're told, you gave your good spirit to teach them. And in checking the Hebrew, we find that the term good spirit is tov ruach. So the English translation is correct. God gave to Israel His divine spirit to be what? Their teacher. Wait a minute. I thought that the activity of the Holy Spirit, especially as the teacher of God's truth, only began in the New Testament time. Only after Christ came and went. Isn't that one of the objections many Christians have against paying any attention to the Old Testament and the Torah? See, that is, we have God's Spirit as our guide. But the people of the Old Testament times and of the era of the law supposedly did not. Well, there's another myth shot down. Mark this passage down. Circle it. Put a great big star next to it. And then dog ear the page. There is no denying what spirit is being talked about here. God's Holy Spirit. Or who it was given to. Israel. And when? At Mount Sinai. So the Holy Spirit is being active among the redeemed even as a teacher was hardly a new phenomenon that began at Pentecost, Shavuot, a few weeks after Messiah's death on the cross. But don't get me wrong, something wonderful did happen that was new at that particular Shavuot. The Holy Spirit went from being active among the redeemed to living within the redeemed. In former times, the Holy Spirit taught us to obey the external Torah, the Torah that was written on stone and and on scrolls. But after Yeshua's death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit supernaturally wrote that Torah on our inward parts, taught us to obey what He brought with Him and put inside of us. That same Torah. That enabled us to have a much deeper devotion to God's laws and commandments and to obey them in the spirit they were intended. But the supernatural actions of God during the Israelites' wilderness journey extended even to something as mundane as their clothing. It didn't wear out. Ladies, that probably doesn't excite you very much. But for me, that's pretty cool. So, every aspect of their lives 
was provided for them by the Father. Let's read some more of Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's move on to verse 22. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 22. Starts on page 1143 of a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read verse 28. You gave them kingdoms and peoples. You even gave them extra land so that they took possession of the land of Sichon, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the countless stars in the sky. Then you brought them into the land about which you had said to their fathers that they should go in and take possession of it. So the children went in and possessed the land and you subdued ahead of them the Canaanites living in the land, handed them over to them along with their kings and the peoples of the land for them to do as they wished. They took fortified cities and fertile land, possessed houses full of all kinds of good things, dug out cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in plenty. So they ate their fill and they grew robust, luxuriating in your great goodness. Yet, they disobeyed and they rebelled against you, throwing your Torah behind their backs. They killed your prophets for not for warning them that they should return to you and committed other gross provocations. You handed them over to the power of their adversaries who oppressed them. Yet in the time of their trouble, when they cried out to you, You heard from heaven, and in keeping with your great compassion, you gave them saviors to save them from the power of their adversaries. But as soon as they had gotten some relief, they went back to do evil before you. So you left them in the power of their enemies, who came down hard on them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven many times and saved them according to your compassion. Verse 22 transitions from the time in the wilderness to entering into the promised land. Therefore, we also transition from Moses' to Joshua's leadership. And we immediately notice the honesty and the theological accuracy of Nehemiah. He notes that the land on the east side of the Jordan River that Israel conquered was and and occupied was extra land. Now in reality, the term extra is not there. This is just put there by the translator of the complete Jewish Bible. But clearly, that is the idea of what's being expressed. That is, the land of Sihon and Bashan was never part of the promised land. But rather, this was additional land that the Lord allowed Israel to possess. Now the idea of giving Israel kingdoms and peoples is referring to the realization of the Abrahamic covenant. And as part of that same covenant fulfillment, this prayer recalls that God made Israel as numerous as the stars, just as He promised He would. In Genesis 15.1 we read this. Sometime later the word of Adonai came to Avram in a vision, Don't be afraid, Avram. I'm your protector. Your reward will be very great. And Avram replied, Adonai God, what good will your gifts be to me if I continue childless? And Eliezer from Damasek inherits my possessions. You haven't given me a child, Avram continued, so someone born in my house will be my heir. But the word of Adonai came to him. 
This man will not be your heir. No, your heir will be a child from your own body. Then he brought him outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars. If you can count them, your descendants will be that many. The land was taken from the Canaanites. It was given to Israel as promised would happen. In fact, the Israelites were essentially given a ready-made place to live in the promised land. They were given already built houses and cisterns for water collection that were already dug. They were given mature and productive vineyards and olive groves. So immediately after subduing the people of Canaan, which Israel did in obedience to God, they started living a life of relative abundance. And they didn't work and toil to create this abundance. They were simply given it. And thanks be to God, we see that once again, this idea of the redeemed of God inheriting a place built by somebody else and merely enjoying its bounty is the establishment of a God pattern that will be repeated and take on even greater meaning later on. Listen to this from John 14, starting at verse 1. Don't let yourselves be disturbed. Trust in God and trust in me. In my Father's house are many places to live. If it weren't, I would have told you. Because I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you. Since I'm going and preparing a place for you, I will return to take you with me. So that where I am, you may also be. Furthermore, you know where I'm going and you know the way there. Isn't this amazing? Yeshua speaks of the ultimate fulfillment of this God pattern that we find in the Hebrew Bible and was just summarized for us in Nehemiah 9.25. Messiah has shown us how to, to arrive, how to get to this perfect place, this promised land. And when we arrive, houses will already have been built for us to live in. We don't have to do anything but trust. Like the Israelites entering Canaan, we inherit what someone else has built. Now from a modern Western viewpoint, that might sound unfair. From God's viewpoint, it's exactly what He intends for His worshipers. But then, that cycle of sin pops up again. In verse 26 we read the ominous words, Yet they disobeyed and rebelled against you. And what is the gauge? What's the measuring stick? The standard that's used to determine disobedience and rebellion? The Torah. God's Word. It seems like Israel simply couldn't enjoy their prosperity. Every time things went well for a time, they veered away from God's written commandments. To put the Torah behind their backs means to turn away from it, to walk away from it. Let's hear how the Apostle James says it. In James 1, starting at verse 21. So rid yourselves of all vulgarity and obnoxious and, and obvious evil. Receive meekly the word implanted in you that can save your lives. Don't deceive yourselves by being, uh, uh, by only hearing what the Word says. Do it. 
For whoever hears the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom and continues becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in what he does. That's a pretty definitive instruction. One thinks that these verses in Nehemiah has to be what James, Yaakov actually, had in mind when he spoke this truth. And as we have read throughout the Tanakh, the Old Testament, these cycles of sin always involve Hebrews turning away from the Torah after years of looking into it. And then instead, they establish their own doctrines and customs and ways. And invariably, assigning a holy label to what they had invented and feeling quite good and safe about it all. Look at both Judaism and Christianity today. It's based mostly on customs and traditions now. The Bible has become a prop in which a a, a few select verses are extracted, often out of context, and then applied to whatever the rabbi or the pastor wishes to validate. And yet, it's the Bible that tells us who we are in Christ, how we are to live our redeemed lives, what we can expect in the future. Indeed, if we stop looking into that clear, perfect mirror of God's Word and then walk away, it doesn't take very long at all before we forget what we look like. But what is inevitable is that we'll also next pick up the distorted and foggy mirror of our human intellect and our traditions and our religious beliefs and look into it and think, ah, this is what we must look like. And what was the result of Israel turning their backs on the Torah, looking into a different and man-made mirror? Verse 26, God sent prophets to the people to warn them to turn back. Prophets were killed because the people didn't like what they heard. What did they hear that they hated so much as to literally murder? They heard that they were wrong. They heard that what they believed was false. That what they did was wicked. They heard that they were headed for God's hand of judgment. And what did God do in response to all this? Step three of the cycle of sin, just like always. God punished His rebellious people. He used pagans to oppress them. What, after many years and their terrible, self-inflicted troubles, did Israel finally do? They cried out to God. 
What did God do in response to their pitiful cries of repentance? He sent saviors to deliver them from the pagan oppressors. But something different happened this time. Israel short-circuited the process. Verse 28 explains that just as soon as they got some relief, what did they do? They went right back to their wickedness. Let me put it this way. As quickly as their circumstances improved to a more tolerable level, they reverted to their rebelliousness and God let them fall right back into the hands of their enemies before they had ever been completely extracted. There is little more human than to react in this way. I can't tell you how many people I have counseled who come to me beat up, worn down, sad, depressed. And when we discuss what's gone wrong in their lives, what part of their behavior has been the biggest offender, what is going to be necessary to remedy it, it is more common than not for them to get impatient, frustrated, or angry and walk right back into the pit. As I like to phrase it, what people usually want is not to change, but rather to have their circumstances made better. They disassociate their circumstances from their morality and their deeds. So they see no need for change in their lives. Only improvement in their bad circumstances. And somebody needs to fix those bad circumstances for them. Then everything will be just okay. Well, the Lord did change the circumstances of the exiled Jews. The Babylonians considered the Jews as captives under their control. As such, they were not permitted very much freedom of movement. Certainly, they weren't able to return to their homeland of Judah. However, Persia came along. They defeated Babylon, took their empire away from them, and emancipated the Jews. King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to go home to Judah. But did the Jews change? No. Were their circumstances better? Immeasurably. The result is that instead of God reinstating Judah as an independent kingdom with a Jewish king, He allowed the Jews to remain under the power of a foreign king. This process of going back to their wickedness, crying out, having some of their circumstances improved, going right back to their wickedness, repeated over and over and over. Let's read a little bit more of Nehemiah. Go to verse 29 of chapter 9. Verse 29. 11.44 in a complete Jewish Bible. You warned them in order to bring them back to your Torah. Yet, they were arrogant. They paid no attention to your commandments, but they sinned against your rulings, which if a person does them, he will have life through them. However, they stubbornly turned their shoulders, stiffened their necks, refused to hear. Many years you extended them mercy and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not listen. 
Therefore you handed them over to the peoples of the lands. Even so, in your great compassion, you didn't completely destroy them, nor did you abandon them, for you are a compassionate, a merciful God. God's warnings, always through His prophets, continued. And the Jews continued to pay no attention to God's warnings or His commandments. And it brought them nothing but misery. And as is the theme hammered into us again and again, verse 29 says that if a person does them, meaning obeying the Torah rulings, he'll have life through them. (coughs) Obeying the Torah is life. Disobeying the Torah is death. It just doesn't get much simpler. God has great patience. And so this process continued for many years as He warned them through His Spirit. There's that Holy Spirit appearing again. Who worked through God's prophets. No luck. The second half of verse 30 now presents us with the opposite of what happens when Israel's obedience and in God's will. I want you to look back to verse 22. Look back to verse 22 right quick. Verse 22. The Israelites have just been instructed by Moses in the mountains of Moab. That's essentially what the book of Deuteronomy is. And they had all vowed to follow God and His laws. So, they behaved that way. And, notice the result as they crossed the Jordan and they entered into Canaan. Verse 22 says, You gave them kingdoms and people. You even gave them extra land. Keep that in your head for a moment. That is, the Canaanites were handed over to Israel and even land on the east side of the river land that was never part of the bargain. That was given to Israel. But then, in verse 30, due to Israel's gross disobedience, now we read this. Many years you extended them mercy and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they wouldn't listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the peoples of the lands. So the reverse happened. They didn't walk with God, so Israel was handed over to the foreigners. Even so, says verse 31, God's purpose was not to destroy His people, not even to abandon them, because His compassion for Israel is so great. So, now, this long history of Israel, beginning with creation, has brought us up to the present day. That is, the present day for the Jews in Nehemiah's time. They are back in Judah, but they're under the authority of a Persian king. And now that Israel has confessed their wrong for both themselves and for their Hebrew ancestors, they bring their request before the Lord. And that request begins in verse 32. Let's read it. Verse 32. It'll take us to the end. Now, therefore, our God, great, mighty, fearsome God who keeps both covenant and grace... Let not all this suffering seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our leaders, our Kohanim, our prophets, our ancestors, and on all your people from the times of the kings of Asher, Assyria, until this very day. There is no question you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have treated us fairly. It is we who have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and ancestors did not keep your Torah. 
Pay attention to your commandments or heed the warnings you gave them. Even when they ruled their own kingdom. Even when you prospered them greatly in the great rich land you gave them. They didn't serve you. Nor did they turn from their wicked deeds. So here we are today, slaves. Yes, in the land you gave to our ancestors so that they could eat what it produces and enjoy its good, here we're in it. Slaves. Its rich yield now goes to the kings you've set over us because of our sins. They have power over our bodies. They can do what they please to our livestock and we are in great distress. first thing I'd like you to notice is how God is characterized in verse 32. He is the God who keeps covenant and grace. Some English translations say covenant and loving kindness. Others say steadfast love. Some will say covenant and mercy. See, these are all translating the same Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. And essentially all these different translations of the word chesed add up to the Christian concept of grace. That is, when you look in a dictionary for the term grace, you'll find it's defined as unmerited favor, loving kindness, mercy, and divine assistance. My point is this. The only translation I can find that uses the word grace for chesed is in this passage in the complete Jewish Bible. All other translations only choose one of the many aspects of grace. Why is that? Simple. Christian doctrine says grace didn't happen until Christ came along. Grace can't be associated with the covenant of the law. So whatever goodness God showed towards Israel in the Old Testament, it wasn't grace. And folks, that is just flat intellectually dishonest and deceptive. We've seen God's grace at every turn. We have an entire chapter here in Nehemiah consisting of this prayer that's all about God's grace. I pointed out numerous times that the Levitical sacrificial system itself is an act of grace. Because God designed a system whereby the human sinner didn't pay for his sins and an innocent animal did. The same thing happened with Christ. We human sinners don't pay for our sins. The innocent Messiah pays. It was pure grace when Israel was delivered from Egypt. They didn't do it themselves. They certainly didn't merit it. Their deliverance from Pharaoh was a free gift from God. So here we have a statement in verse 32 that God acts both as one who faithfully keeps the terms of His covenants, the blessings and the curses, but He also will act in grace towards those He deems He wants to help. God's grace wasn't kept on the shelf until Yeshua came onto the scene. Thus the prayerful worshipers in front of Ezra ask this of the Lord. Look down upon our suffering and save us. They admit 
that the suffering they're experiencing is fully just. It's the Israelites who were unfaithful and broke the terms of the covenant, thereby bringing their problems upon their own heads. It is their wickedness that has caused God's judgment to fall upon them. And that definition of wickedness is in the next few words. Our kings, our leaders, our kohanim, our priests, and our ancestors did not keep your Torah. They did not pay attention to the commandments, the mitzvot, or heed the warnings. And now says verse 36, even though they are back in their own land, it's as though they are slaves. Now this to be clear, is hyperbole. The Jews are not slaves, but in their own minds, since they're not under a Jewish king and not an independent Jewish nation, they're not exactly free either. Instead of a Davidic king ruling over them, a Persian king who resides far away has that power. The Persian king doesn't use the Torah as the civil law, nor does he even abide by its principles. Rather, it is the king's version of morality and fairness and justice that the Jews live under. The land that was once their own, given to them through Abraham, now belongs to the king of Persia. The produce that comes from that good land that was once theirs belongs to the king of Persia. All this... Because the Jews, the Israelites, could not seem to go more than a few years in obedience to the Lord before they rebelled against Him. Look around you today. For too many of us, we are also trapped in this cycle of sin that leads us from shalom to sin to despair and back again. We have God's Word. We have the Holy Spirit. So why does this keep happening to us? The Apostle Paul, I think, sums it up rather well in the book of Romans. If your life is like this, then look up here and pay attention. In Romans 7, 14-25, For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit, but as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold as sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very things I hate. Now, if I am doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good. But now it's no longer the real me doing it, but it's the sin that's housed inside of me. For I know that there's nothing good housed inside of me that is anything but my old nature. I can want what's good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want is what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me doing it. It's the sin that's housed inside of me. So I I, I find it to be the rule, a kind of a perverse Torah. That although... I want to do what's good. Evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah. One that battles with the Torah in my mind. And it makes me a prisoner of sin's Torah, which is operating in all my various parts. Oh, what a miserable creature I am. 
Who will rescue me from this body bound for death? Oh, thanks be to God, He will. Through Yeshua, our Messiah, our Lord. To sum up, with my mind, I am a slave of God's Torah, but with my old nature, I'm a slave of sin's Torah. We'll start chapter 10 next week.